So welcome back, everybody. Um, I graded your, your papers, or not your papers, your quizzes. Sorry, it took me a while. I posted the grades this morning. If you want them back, they are right here. Um, but probably don't want them back, so just in case. Um, hey, so we are continuing our exciting journey through um, beginning of life issues. I posted the lesson on Friday on um, sterilization and the different Vatican documents. I hope it made sense for those who had the chance to be able to watch it uh, with some of the questions or confusion some people had over what the Vatican was trying to say in that most recent article, uh, that most recent response from 2018. What I want to do today, though, is move forward now to the topic of prenatal screening and pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and therapy. Um, so these are, I guess, some of them kind of on the horizon topics, um, but the Vatican has spoken on them, and I would like to address them, including uh, some ethical dilemmas that might come up that hopefully will allow us to have a good discussion today. So we're, we're once again here at the intersection of technology and reproduction. As humans, we're having more and more control over the process. In a certain sense, procreation or reproduction has become a process where we can intervene at all of these different stages. Um, one of the things when we're talking about prenatal uh, testing and particularly pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, if indeed you accept in vitro fertilization as legitimate, this along even with sterilization becomes in sort of common secular parlance, uh, reproductive rights, a part of the reproductive freedoms that people claim uh, to have. And this is the argument that is used to justify these and other procedures. It's a broad topic, but I want to focus on the, sc the screening, the gene therapy, and specifically CRISPR and gene editing. We had a whole class on that last semester, but we're just going to look at it very, very briefly today, and I've given you other resources. Uh, let's begin with prenatal diagnosis. So here we're talking about the, the embryo, the fetus that is in the mother's womb and the different methods that we have to uh, diagnose and then potentially eventually treat the child who is in the mother's womb, okay? This is apart from pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, which is done through the process of in vitro fertilization. So our ERDs, let's begin with that. Number 50, prenatal diagnosis is permitted when the procedure does not threaten the life or physical integrity of the unborn child or the mother and does not subject them to disproportionate risks. And the diagnosis can provide information to guide preventative care for the mother or pre or postnatal child care for the child. And when the parents, or at least the mother, give free and informed consent. 
Prenatal diagnosis is not permitted when undertaken with the intention of aborting an unborn child with a serious defect. So I think this should be pretty logical. And the, the magisterial teaching from Donum Vitae uh, is the one that sort of set the tone for this. And question number two, is prenatal diagnosis morally licit? And it says yes, basically according to the same terms that we've been describing. Whenever it respects the life and integrity of the embryo, when it is ordered towards therapeutic purposes and not through eugenic or potentially abortive intentions, when the, 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 the balance between um, risks and benefits can be weighed out, and of course, with the consent of the parents after um, proper, properly being informed about the risks and the benefits um, that shouldn't be disproportionate risks. And of course, as the Vatican will, will conclude, that any time this is done with the hope of inducing an abortion, it becomes morally seriously problematic for the woman who would be committing a gravely illicit act, for the spouse or relatives who would be counseling or encouraging, and of course, for the specialist. None of this would be acceptable. Um, so the distinction we're gonna make is the diagnosis itself, or to diagnose is not morally illicit. However, it all depends on the intention, uh, mainly, and of course, the weighing of these risks, which will be done by the parents with the consultation of the doctors. Make sense? I mean, it's pretty common sense. You can go read the document yourself. However, though, the, 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 the book, the Catholic Health Ethics books, makes a few more distinctions that I think are important. One of them is the responsibility, or how should I put it, of the screening companies and the doctors. Well, this is actually something I'm putting in here. Let's say that you own an independent um, screening company. Let's just say that. And someone comes to you and they want to have their child diagnosed for some sort of birth defects. If you think that there's a chance that they might want to have an abortion, should you do it? Huh? That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, why else are they doing it? I don't know. I mean, are you culpable? If it's not, if you're not, if you're just, just some random ultrasound place or some uh, other places doing testing, Josh, what do you think? Mm-hmm. They could just go to someone else who wouldn't 
advise them not to abort, or mm-hmm. they could just choose to abort anyway if you refuse to do it for them. So, so I mean, you wouldn't be performing the abortion, you're just a screening company. Right. But basically, it would be the autonomy of the mother, I think, to make... Yeah, you know, you know, they choose to or not, you're just simply doing the, the service. So I think it would really weigh on the, uh, the responsibility of the mother. Um, but the other ethical considerations um, that, that the book brings up is the question of how invasive these techniques are. You have very non-invasive um, techniques such as blood tests or ultrasound. They have little or no risks to the mother or the child. However, the data that they get back are very limited. The results are very limited. There are more invasive ones. They call they named one called NIPT. It has better risk, better results, but there are higher risks and they are more invasive which often means some type of a a medical procedure uh, with the insertion of a a needle or something into the mother's womb. Um, Also, it makes points that some of these tests can be misleading and misunderstood. Even though, indeed, they give better results, there can still be false positives for different genetic defects. So that's pretty easy. Next is genetic counseling. So this is, yes. Yeah, I would just like just add that. Like half the time you hear these stories about the screening, the results being wrong. Oh, absolutely. And so, like, how can you even? Like, with that in mind, like, how can you really make any kind of choices or be bold? It's just like almost like a prediction. Like, weather prediction at that point. No, I, I agree with you. I mean, you, in a certain sense, can do the screening and they get counseling to decide what could or couldn't be done, but you can always go back and get it tested again. Um, but I mean, I'm assuming here that Catholic moms are not going to want to have an abortion or something like that. But still, um, you're right. I have heard plenty of cases where parents have called me and they asked for prayers because they went to these one of these prenatal screenings and there was supposedly some type of genetic defect and then come back two or three weeks later, everything is fine. You know, they'd read it wrong or there was a miracle or something. What about genetic counseling? This is ERD 54. Genetic counseling may be provided in order to promote responsible parenthood and to prepare for the proper treatment and care of children with genetic defects. In accordance with the Catholic's teaching on the intrinsic rights and obligations of married couples regarding the transmission of life. So in a sense, so yeah, so you do the diagnosis and then you seek counseling. Uh, It brings this point up as long as we're not seeking counseling to have an abortion or something like that. There's also the possibility of treating the child in the mother's womb, which we'll talk about uh, next time. The, the big issue, though, I guess that we're not going to accept it as legitimate at all, of course, because we've already condemned and seen why IVF is unacceptable. But this thing called PGD, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. And Dignitatis Personae does a fair amount of discussion of this in number 22. First explaining exactly what it is. This PGD is a form of prenatal diagnosis connected with techniques of artificial fertilization in which embryos formed in vitro 
undergo genetic diagnosis before being transferred into a mother's womb or a woman's womb. Such diagnosis is done in order to ensure that only embryos free from defects or having the desired sex or other particular qualities are transferred. But basically, it is just this prenatal diagnosis. Instead of done in utero, in the uterus, in the womb, it is done in the lab. Um, unlike other forms of prenatal diagnosis, in which the diagnostic phase is clearly separated from any possible later elimination, and which therefore provide a period in which a couple would be free to accept a child with medical problems. In this case, the diagnosis before implantation is immediately followed by the elimination of an embryo suspected of having these defects or not the desired sex or not the qualities wanted. So the Vatican is arguing here that there is an inherent connection, intentionality with the elimination of embryos, okay? So we have it allied to in vitro fertilization, which is not going to be acceptable, and the intention to eliminate uh, these unsuitable or undesired embryos. Yes. So the PGD, they undergo diagnosis, find out those particular genes or whatever is involved in that, mm -hmm. and then the embryos that say that you, you are unsatisfied with the embryos. Well, I think you could, you wouldn't have to immediately eliminate. You could say, well, I don't want this one implanted in my womb. But the, argue is if, the argument is, if it's a, not a desired sex or if there is some defect, would you ever want it implanted in the womb? I guess the Vatican is just sort of assuming that they'll either be discarded or they won't be implanted. Yeah, so either discarded or frozen. Frozen, yeah. And for however long they, they keep them frozen for. Of course, it is always going to be considered uh, unacceptable because of its connection to both abortion and IVF. But um, it also points out the eugenic mentality, an attitude that is shameful and utterly reprehensible since it presumes to measure the value of a human life only within the parameters of normality and physical well-being, thus opening the way to legitimizing infanticide and euthanasia as well. So it is pointing out this eugenic mentality. We are going to discard or remove life that does not seem suitable because of these, these qualities. And so it goes back to the human dignity argument in Dignitas Personae 22, by saying that treating the human embryo is mere laboratory material, uh, the concept of human dignity is also subjected to alteration and discrimination. But th this is the interesting part here that I'd like to, to see what y'all have to think about or say is, it makes a connection of the argument of this discrimination of embryos that have genetic defects or disabilities to the possible discrimination against humans who are born. If at other times in history, while the concept and requirements of human dignity were accepted in general, discrimination was practiced on the basis of race, religion, or social condition. Today, there is no less serious and unjust form of discrimination 
which leads to the non-recognition of the ethical and legal status of human beings suffering from serious diseases or disabilities. It is forgotten that sick and disabled people are not some separate category of humanity. In fact, sickness and disability are part of the human condition and affect every individual, even when there is no direct experience of it. Such discrimination is immoral, and, and, and we have a, a duty to eliminate it. What do, you, what do you think of that? Do you think that as a culture, if we begin to have more and more of a practice of this pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, if IVF tends to be more accepted, that it would affect our understanding of disabilities and human dignity outside of the womb? Yes. I think it, uh, a lot has to do, with, like you mentioned before, if you're living a sacramental life, mm-hmm. you, that you would think that God uh, would have his hands in whatever he has brought into your life. Mm-hmm. That if you're not living a sacramental life, you look at it as just a, a thing that you can dispose of. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. <laughs> if you live a sacramental life, you're going to understand human dignity, yeah. and you're going to understand the person in relation to Christ. Yeah. I think from even just a practical, like, sociological level. If you're, if you're doing this kind of prenatal eugenics thing, uh, you know, people with these abnormalities are going to be less common. So even just from that basic level, like, you're, we're not going to be as exposed to them. They're going to be more weird, like, mm-hmm. when, you, when, you, when you finally see them. So that's going to make um, solidarity more difficult. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, like, you're not supposed to be here. Oh, like, this wasn't supposed to happen. Like, like it's much more of a sharp category distinction. Mm -hmm. I think I actually see this possibly turning into a really interesting battle between like the crazy utopians and the crazy woke people. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I really have no idea who's going to win, but it's it's the one side wants to push their agenda and like build utopia, right? And the other side finds meaning in their life by finding vulnerable populations and defending them on the internet attacking people, right? This this is what they do, self-actualize. So I I think there could be a really interesting battle there. Um, And honestly, I feel like the woke people might win. What did you think, Zeldin? The woke people have already won that battle because they will will twist it to um, suggesting that someone who allows person born with a disability that could have been aborted come into the world, that you are stealing the resources of everyone else who is wise and smart and, uh, and good about their choices. Uh, I think this is pretty obvious that it will lead to you know, the, possi- use of the possibility of people treating those with disabilities with more discrimination and less understanding. I think it's obvious it will cause that. I mean, you, you see, if, just, just think about the, the, the slight version of this Catholics or non-Catholics with large families, the stigma that people, that parents in those families receive already, because you're not smart enough and wise enough and woke enough to have controlled small families, and look what you're doing to the rest of us with with your big families. Just you already see that. So just imagine someone, you know, Down syndrome is a perfect example. It's like Iceland where all Down syndrome babies are just assumed to be aborted. Uh, if you were to bring a Down syndrome baby mm-hmm. to the world, you are wrong and unfair.
unfair to the rest of society by mm -hmm. causing this extra burden. Mm -hmm. um, and the stigma will be not only on the Down syndrome child, but the family and those who quote unquote chose to let, let the child live. Um, I mean, it just, it just seems very obvious to me with examples that I've seen that that's just, it's going to happen or it hasn't. I think you can see also socialistic motives there. Well, you must be good for the, the, the people and the government's the intervention. So could, there, could there ever be eugenic motives for not having a child? Okay, no, okay, but but wait, could there ever be legitimate eugenic, not eugenic with a negative connotation, but because I do not want to, I realize that I have a genetic defect, and I don't want to pass it on, and so I choose not to. Yeah. Huntington's disease, for example, you go crazy with it. And so the people who in this world currently choose to not have to get married or procreate or whatever, I mean, obviously the church would recommend you, you, you learn celibacy. Yeah, it's all the time. Yeah, is it? And the, the eyes of the church is it legitimate? Yes, as long as you do it through abstaining from. Sin. Yeah, I mean that's pious. It was one of the, the 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 reasons that pious gave for limiting the size of the family or to 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 use NFP to not have children is for potential eugenic purposes. You could choose to continue to have children. But that's the question, though, in this, when the mentality takes over from the negative perspective within a culture, then it's seen as something very, very bad, that you're, you're bringing suffering to the world, or you're burdening the society, or you're burdening the culture. What about, well, I want to move to the next part, which is the one that's really, I guess, the, the, that's on the horizon, and that Dignitas Personae spends several paragraphs talking about, is gene therapy, okay? Number 25, gene therapy commonly refers to techniques of genetic engineering. So this is basically editing the genome somehow. Applied to human beings for therapeutic purposes, that is to say with the aim of curing genetically based diseases, although recently gene therapy has been attempted for diseases which are not inherited for cancer in particular. So there are different forms of gene therapy, the type that is the most talked about now um, is CRISPR-Cas9. I can't tell you what these stand for, but it's called CRISPR. It's a way to go in and edit certain sections of the genome uh, in order to edit, alter it for therapeutic purposes, for potentially non-therapeutic purposes. So we'll get into that in a second. But what this document is going to do, because I don't know how much y'all are going to deal with this, but this is the future of bioethics here. And the more you read about it, yes. This is editing in the womb, out the womb. This could be editing you. It could be in the womb, out the womb, an adult. It could be editing anybody. You could edit yourself, technically. As from what Father Nicanor talked about last year, um, you could, you, there could be the day where you can make your own kid at home and just edit yourself. Yeah. There's actually somebody who supposedly did it. I think when it comes to like gene therapy, you're saying Lou Gallagher, 
Yes, we need to watch Gattaca. It's really good. Uh, but, but also, beyond like physical limitations, like uh, genetic diseases that are like, genealogical, right? What happens like when you start thinking about people that say they have mental illness or the family or alcoholism or just like these other traits? I think <coughs> dive to the rabbit hole of thinking like, well, I might pass on something bad to my kids. Well, like, of course, that's like the nature of man being broken. Like, you're probably going to pass on your bad temperament and, well, other things, you know, like, I mean, like, in some way. Yeah, you're right. And so there's, the question comes if, let's say, technology is advanced so far enough, people are going to start saying, well, hey, you have a responsibility not to pass it on if you know it's going to be there. But even if you, but how do you make the distinction between this is good to pass on, this is not good to pass on? I think it's interesting, all of a sudden, if we can edit some of these bad traits out, how does that discussion end up uh, being talked about our moral responsibility and also the eugenic purposes? Uh, let me sort of make these distinctions here that the Vatican is going to make when it comes to uh, types of genetic engineering or genetic therapy. So the first is somatic, which means of the body. So it could be in utero, it could be in vitro, it could be editing. Sister, you could be edited if you, if you need it to be. The next is germ cell. That is going to be editing the sperm or the eggs so that when the, the, there's fertilization, that this trait is either removed or added to, potentially. You could add certain traits. You could do different things from the, uh, from the germline. Then, of course, you have therapeutic and then non-therapeutic. We're going to make our little grid to see what's acceptable. So somatic is to eliminate or reduce genetic defects on the level of somatic cells. That is cells other than the reproductive cells. And of course, germline is for the reproductive cells. So let's look at somatic cell therapeutic. So we're just looking at therapeutic for the somatic cells. Procedures used in somatic cells, bodily cells, for strictly therapeutic purposes are, in principle, morally illicit. Such actions seek to restore the normal genetic configuration of the patient or to counter damage caused by genetic anomalies or those related to other pathologies. So like the potential for editing out, you know, uh, some type of genetic defect, Down syndrome, potentially you could edit out and you could edit out in one part of the body, and from what I understand, it would sort of continue to the rest of your cells and somehow cure this disease, potentially curing cancer, potentially doing a lot of stuff, potentially doing a lot of stuff. This would be, assuming that you had um, the right intentions, morally acceptable. However, given that gene therapy can involve significant risk for the patient, what if you end up editing the wrong section of the gene mistakenly? There can be risks. In order to proceed to a genetic intervention, it is necessary to establish beforehand the person being treated will not be exposed to risks to his health, physical integrity, which are disproportionate. So you, you want to just be able to consider the risks 
Granted, let's say somebody is dying of cancer and there's a high risk for the therapy. Well, you may want to take the risks because of the fact that you'd end up dead. The germ cell. What do you think the Vatican would say about germ cell? Or for me, what have you read, you read about it? Is this going to be acceptable? Yes. Yeah, you're right. So you, you'd have to sort of use some form of in vitro fertilization. But listen to what the what thing. Yes. Okay. But okay, no, no, listen, you're, you're correct. Listen to what it says. For these reasons, therefore, it must be stated that it goes through the moral evaluation of germ cell therapy is different. Whatever genetic modifications are affected on the germ cells of a person will be transmitted to potential offspring, which I think brings up the issue. Is this really fair to the offspring? If I just simply do a somatic cell change in me, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be passed on to my genera- my, the next generation. Because the risks connected are considerable and not controllable in the present state of research, it is not morally permissible to act in a way that may cause possible harm to progeny. So you're not just talking about yourself, you're talking about the progeny. And then also for the fact that it takes some place in vitro fertilization, it runs up against ethical objections to these procedures. For these reasons, therefore, it must be stated that in its current state, germ cell, line cell therapy in all its forms is morally illicit. So in its current state, could it be something different in the future where maybe you could alter the eggs that are in the, 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 the woman's body or the sperm, potentially, but even then, the question of passing on a progeny, the answer is probably going to be no. What about for non-therapeutic purposes? The question of using genetic engineering for purposes other than medical treatment calls for consideration. This is to potentially improve or strengthen the gene pool. Some of these proposals exhibit a certain dissatisfaction or even rejection of the value of the human being as a finite creature. We're going to talk about perfectibility in the humans later on. Apart from the risks, such manipulation would promote a eugenic mentality and will lead to indirect social stigma with regard to people who lack certain qualities. So we have to consider that. All of a sudden, if we start engineering people and other people don't have certain qualities, we have a problem. This would be in contrast to the fundamental truth of the equality of all human beings, and therefore probably not going to be something we want to venture into. Also, it continues, one wonders who would be able to establish which modifications were to be held as positive and which not, and which limits should be placed. Um, So these criteria are very questionable. All of this leads to the conclusion that the prospect of such an intervention would end sooner or later by harming the common good, by favoring the will of some other over the freedom of others. Finally, it also must be noted the attempt to create a new type of human being. One can recognize an ideological element in which man tries to take the place of the creator. And stating the ethical negativity of these kinds of interventions, which imply an unjust domination of man over man, the church needs to goes back to caring for uh, humans in their finite nature. 
So it basically is going to say that the, the therapeutic, the non-therapeutic or potentially, let's say, experimental reasons for this not going to be acceptable. What do you say? So okay, this is this is this is not from the book. This is from the Vatican here. Yeah, 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 yeah. The class. The class, yeah. We have all sorts of non-therapeutic changes to our body and soul and spirit or intellect that we don't have any problems with. There's stigmas. Um, I mean, working out at the gym. Uh, <laughs> a good example that everyone can relate to. Well, that's the thing. If you look at it, uh, uh, go ahead. Oh, okay. Um, so, I, I, one thing that might be helpful if I'm on the science of this, but I do know enough to know that genetics is a lot more fluid than we often uh, give it credit for. Mm-hmm. Like you're even giving credence to things like epigenetics yeah. and, and how even uh, like there's, there's studies that maybe like trauma or other, other things can actually uh, damage or affect genetics, stop them from firing or, or something like that. So in, in other words, yeah, like it's not like computer code per se, even though we use that analogy all the time. So I wonder if we can look at this like a natural dynamic process of the body, and if so, we can interact with and alter it in a way that's not uh, violent or opposed to be, you know what I'm saying? Like the, the reason it's, this would be different than say working out because you're working with the natural process of your mm-hmm, body mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. muscles and that sort of thing. Whereas with this, it'd be some invasive injection or I don't actually know how it's, how it's working, but you know, um, yeah, I don't know. Actually, I have nothing to add because I think it's not as cut and dry as... Yeah, but, but let's, let's go back and... Sister, cause go back and look at the, at that, the Dignitatis Persona 27 and look at the language. Does it say it's morally illicit? No, no. You, that, I think it sort of alludes to that. We could just change my follicles so I can grow hair on my head again. I mean, yeah. is that too much to ask? <laughs> that's therapeutic. That's therapeutic. It's tough to. It's really tough to define because, like, let's say I want to bring me back to a time when my jaw wasn't so weird and small because of evolution. Because I used to chew more food, so I could breathe better. You know, like a pit bull problem. Hold on, problem. Like there are things you can do that are they're natural. They naturally happen because we have processed food. But maybe you want to. So it's tough to even decide which one to switch. Well, we're going to get into this a lot more later when we talk about perfectibility and enhancement, because you know there are students in college who take Ritalin before a test. Do they have an unfair advantage because they're taking that? They're not editing their genome, but you drink coffee in the morning. You have an unfair advantage. Uh, what are these distinctions? But but before, 
What does the Vatican document say? And I'm looking back over it again. Does it say that it's morally illicit? What is the phrase they use about all these things? Basically, say that sooner or later, it, it will lead to kind of a harming of the common good. But, but yeah, but look at, in stating the ethical negativity, I'm not saying they're, what is, yeah, what is ethical negativity? It doesn't say it's morally illicit like this one is. So it says there are all these risks, but it doesn't come out and say you can't do it. I think that there are distinctions that potentially could be made. And this is something that Nicanor Ostriaco talks about if you read some of his stuff. And I'm not saying that this is the distinction he's making. Non-therapeutic could probably be divided into other subcategories. Yes? Yeah, I, I thought that was an interesting point. Like, you can even apply it, that same train of thought to maybe, like, formation, right? If you're taking, I'm saying, like, if you're taking, um, antidepressants or anti-anxiety and you're discerning a vocation with that trying to translate you can apply to this and be like are you actually discerning like in a, in a, in a free way mm-hmm. are you found like, oh it's there's, there's a lot there's a lot to like when you start getting into therapeutic like medicine that if you like where's the line you know? yeah i think it's going to be stronger on the germ cell like the ethical negativity because if you're passing it along but here, where is the distinction between non-therapeutic, we're doing it, let's say, because we want to have more hair or we want to have other sort of traits versus enhancement? What if we could do this genetic testing or the genetic editing and give everybody five more points of IQ. We're going to cross the board. Yes. It's an enhancement. It's not therapeutic. Would that be a bad thing? Is that possible? Could we maybe roll consent back into this? But that's where I think, yes, I, I think consent does roll back into it, particularly when it comes to the germline. I guess you could put consent here if you want. What do you mean? I would say, particularly for germline consent. Well, I mean, even in the IQ example, what if someone, what if the Jehovah's Witnesses decide that they think this is immoral too and they don't want to do it? You can't force right. them. So, right, you can. So, therefore, even though it seems like this great philanthropic thing that's going on, it's immoral in a way. In a hypothetical scenario where there's one thing that we can somehow do to everybody that everybody would consent to. Maybe that's an interesting question, but that will literally never happen. So, yeah. So let's l- let me just make a brief comment about CRISPR and gene editing. This is the future. And Ostriaco says CRISPR is a cutting edge molecular editing tool that can be used to alter every gene in any organism, whether an elephant, orchid, or human infant. If you imagine the human genome, the genetic information found in most of our cells has an encyclopedia of 46 volumes with approximately 6 billion letters. CRISPR gives us the power to change the letter A on column 2 of page 1311 of the third volume of that encyclopedia to a C. These very small detailed things. In theory, we can now edit the genes of any child at will to create designer babies 
with specific characteristics and desirable traits. I, he, we didn't record it, but Ostriaco gave a fantastic lecture last year uh, on it, and he he says that they're still working on perfecting it. There can be off-target mistakes, but he talks about the fact that within a few years, in-home CRISPR genetic editing will probably be possible. So you could have your own kit. I think he was talking about this guy who even somehow made his skin cells translucent green, or like this, all these things. So the question is, is what if it is, what if gene editing becomes something that can be done at home? Let's just say it does. And then some people decide, I'm gonna start editing my, uh, my germ cells. Oh, no. That's what he's saying, no, it won't be. It's gonna be pretty simple. If you could, just like you remember the 3D printing, well, you could buy a 3D printer at your house and you could print things up now. Is it changing the world? What if, what if this happens? Even, I mean, granted, there are going to be certain things that right now you're going to have to pay a lot for. It could become very democratized. It's something to really consider, uh, particularly as this becomes easier to do. Gilbert Mylander talks about this easy PGD where it could be done at home, where it becomes cheap let's say in vitro fertilization becomes the norm. Um, these designer babies, as it talks about, as he talks about, where is enhancement, where's the line nine therapeutic between designer? Where I'm not really enhancing you by changing your eye color, but I am not really enhancing you, but I could say I want a girl instead of a boy with blonde hair and blue eyes. And we could go in there and change that. It may be an invalid argument, but it doesn't mean that it potentially won't happen. It doesn't mean it won't happen. Yeah. But the question is, uh, how much should we limit things because somebody could do something wrong versus, mm. versus we're aiming to do something right with it? And that's, uh, that's always a question. But every technological thing we accept now has had arguments against it. Like you go to the anesthesia museum in New Orleans or the pharmacy museum, and you've got this article by a Protestant minister how women shouldn't have uh, any sort of any sort of uh, anesthesia in childbirth because that pain will save their souls. Mm -hmm. and of course, nobody thinks that way. Mm -hmm. But I'm not. Yeah, I'm not. 
the the point that I want to sort of bring here. Get, go ahead, brother. I'm just curious. Is um is any of these distinctions made by the church design or enhancement, whatever, in regard to plastic surgery? We're gonna get we're gonna we're gonna get to that. Is it related to this? I, I think you could. I think you could you could because we're going to have a body modification, which this is a really intense form of body modification. If you're going to do somatic cell transfer, what is the reason you're having plastic surgery? Let's say that you just want a prettier nose, or you what is that? That's non-therapeutic versus therapeutic. When is that going to be acceptable? Which is under the larger issue of human perfectibility which we're going to have a class in perfectibility and one in body modification. The, the, the key, though, I think, with both of these things here, as much as we might want to bring up societal norms, is that question that we brought up before is desire, which is generated by consumerism. I can design what kind of eye watch I want. I can decide what kind of shirt I want. Why not design what kind of baby I want? And if I have the desire for that baby, why should I not have it? So these are all the different aspects that sort of connect into it. I, I want to close with one thing that I read about, and I think I may have put the article on there. Have any of you done any research or read about mitochondrial replacement therapy? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay. So. Yeah, so I have the same biological limitation in explaining things, but this was something, one of the journals I like to read is called the New Atlantis. It's from a sort of a Jewish, secular, Christian perspective. It's not Catholic, but it often writes very thoughtful articles. It's been around for 20 years. So basically, what is this? This is another thing that is kind of on the horizon, where within the, 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 the egg, you have your... your DNA, but you also have, like you put your, your chromosomes there that are passed on, but you also have mitochondrial DNA. So let's say that we go to a woman and find out that she has decently healthy chromosomes, but there's something wrong with her mitochondrial DNA that potentially could lead to problem or carry diseases. Well, what happened is they would instead of removing it all from the egg, they would remove the, the, the unhealthy mitochondrial DNA and from a donor, insert just healthy mitochondrial DNA they've taken from her egg. So you have basically two women. One woman wants to have a kid. Unhealthy mitochondrial DNA, remove the mitochondria, Healthy woman donor donating the healthy mitochondria. Man comes along, fertilizes it with a sperm in order to eliminate the potential for passing on these diseases that are not necessarily chromosomal but in the mitochondrial DNA. And so the article talks about the risk-benefit analysis. Of course, we're not going to accept this because it implies in vitro fertilization. But basically, you have a person with three-parent DNA. Mom, 
chromosome, mom, mitochondrial, dad, sperm. And the argument is, well, you would do, if you're going to take the second perspective, you would do your general risk benefits analysis to see if it would be justified. But this author says, and I, I think I put the article, or I can upload it, the real purpose for this is not, in practice, is not therapeutic, but what he calls kinship engineering. Kinship engineering. And this is going to be a type of genetics that we've, kinship we've never seen before. And this is what his argument is. Three-parent IVF easily suggests itself to allowing lesbian couples to have children genetically related to both partners. One of the women would be the mitochondrial donor, while the other would provide the chromosomal DNA. The two women would make unequal genetic contributions to the child, but both would contribute, unlike with, with conventional IVF. So this becomes reproductive freedom, as we've already talked about, which is being pushed. So now, if it's not therapeutic, what about the dangers of the child just so a lesbian couple can say, we're both moms to this child? Our DNA is in that child. Or what would the effect be on the child itself? Um, I, I, I don't know if they've done it yet, but I know that this is... So they don't have like a test, like a test subject that has three-parent DNA? I, I don't... Or I don't not humans as far as... Not humans as far as I can say. I don't think so. has been around for almost a decade, but yeah. Yeah, but what a, this is just another... This is the, another thing where... As IVF continues to advance, you have all these possibilities. There's actually a possibility. Imagine that if you could take a man and you could turn his with the, the um, stem cells, you could maybe make that grow into an egg with the male's DNA. And there's all these strange different combinations that we could have that not only affect the person, but end up affecting children. We could get into some really, really crazy things, but I think that, and I could be wrong, particularly CRISPR gene editing becomes the future of bioethics, particularly within the next 25 to 30 years, if indeed we don't see a shift in IVF. I just learned that L Louise Brown, the first IVF baby, had IVF twins. Did y'all know that? She had IVF twins, she's carrying on the legacy. Um, as this becomes more and more acceptable as women want to have children later and later and these different types of gene editing are possible why not? the technocratic paradigm why not? it creates its own ethic why shouldn't we do it? and what kind of ethical issues are y'all going to face particularly as the next generation of priests that we can't even imagine Closing comments or thoughts? Do y'all have anything that y'all want to reflect on? Or, or, or I know there's so many parts to this, it could become very complicated. What is the kind of line, the, the argument of um, you know, technology is that it has been a good thing for society as a whole? Like, yeah. Like, 
cure diseases that we otherwise wouldn't have had for the last hundred years or something. Is there an argument that would, I guess, rebuke that general statement of technology, like being able to uh, go against? Like I'm saying, like I'm not saying, like you know, using technology to cure certain diseases right now is a bad thing, but it seems as if the further we allow that general statement to, I guess, not be applied specifically, then you can say, like, yeah, the technocratic paradigm has its way. Like, why not? Why keep doing all these things? And nature becomes less and less and less of an argument. Mm -hmm. But is there room for even just arguing for nature while also respecting the good that technology has done? Um, oh, I, th I think I think there definitely is. Like, say with the enhancement thing. Okay, yes, there's, like, you have something natural, like, working out, which you can go to an extreme and abuse that. But to have like an enhancement to where say you don't require working out to have a healthy body. No, you could take some the steroids. Steroids, steroids yeah. Like, right, the intention of having a healthy body, not necessarily the worst thing in the world, but like going so much against nature, is there an argument for that or not? And can it be applied to all these different well, I think we're gonna, we'll, we're gonna get into that more when we look at human perfectibility a little bit later on, and these types of things, whether they be uh, medicines to enhance your thinking, uh, steroids for your body. Is there a bright line where you should do it and you shouldn't do it? How do you argue technology versus nature? I, I don't think there's a clear line, and I think, but I think the important part is, is that we're discussing it. The, the issue becomes as a culture, we just sort of accept things, with, and we don't need to be as a church condemning everything, but at least saying, let's think about these things before we move forward. And to have these ethical, nuanced discussions um, about the role of nature, about the role of original, not original sin, but imperfection. When does that become a good thing? Uh, when does it become a problem if we're trying to basically make an Aryan race? Even though we may not be killing others, we can still work towards this perfect Aryan utopia by tweaking instead of destroying. So I'm open to it. Sunday night, I know that's one of the nights that's good for movies. Let's watch Gattaca. We've mentioned it enough. Gattaca, 1997, Ethan Hawke. Uh, so why don't we like reserve the TV in the bib? All right. All right, we'll come back. So uh, please, y'all, the, the th I edited some of the readings to make it easier for next time. We're going to talk about pregnancy and vital conflicts. Please read the Phoenix case. There's a, there's a, I want to have a discussion about that. Um, we're going to talk a bit about vital conflicts between the child and the mother, pregnancy issues, ectopic pregnancy, which is fairly easy to deal with, but some of these really difficult decisions uh, that mothers have to make along with their doctors, um, we're going to, and they're going to often bring priests in. For my example or my experience, neonatal and prenatal care of the pregnant woman I've encountered much more as a priest than stuff at the end of life. And that's maybe because I work with the younger population for most of the time, but these are questions that you are going to get. Um, so please read those readings, particularly the Phoenix case. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. The beginning is now, and it shall be, or without end. Amen. The Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.